I'm Eva. I'm Ellen. And this is Longhorn Lab Report. What are some cool things going on in labs on campus this week, Eva? Well, UT scientists are working on a biological cement that repairs itself. That's so cool. I'm glad we're putting microbes to good use. UT researchers also did a study on how city bacteria and country bacteria are different. How are they different? Cities have more microbes, and there are more species that are associated with humans. You'll have to check out Emmanuel's article to find out more. The illustration is pretty funny, too. <laughs> what did Stacy write about this week on her Ask a Nutrition Major column? She wrote about how confusing food labels are. Apparently, things are only 100% organic if they're labeled 100% organic. Wow, that's confusing. What about foods that are just labeled organic? They have to be up to 95% organic. Um, what's the other 5%? Your guess is as good as mine, Eva. Speaking of mysteries, have you heard about all the cool space science going on this week? Yes! Freya's article about the Type 1a supernova was amazing. I never knew that white dwarves were once stars that looked a lot like our sun. Agreed. Also, the article about the new planet K225b is fascinating. It's so cool how the stuff UT astronomers are observing can help us learn about the origins of the universe and how it's growing. Agreed! We've been making so much progress over the last few months with dark matter and energy. What's dark energy again? It's what's causing the universe to expand. You can find out from Laura's article from last week. Did you see that talk by the former astronaut? No, what did he talk about? He said to follow your dreams, even if you get discouraged. Was he discouraged when he was trying to become an astronaut? Yes, he had a heart murmur and couldn't become a fighter pilot. Wow, like the boy in Little Miss Sunshine? Yep. Also, Penny Heaton, director of vaccine development at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, talked about vaccines. That sounds interesting. Where can I read about that? You can check out Zia's article online. <coughs> uh, are you coming down to something? I think so. I may just need to sleep more. You could also call Remedy, Austin's new healthcare startup. They have doctors that will visit you. That's so cool. Where can I read more about that? Laura wrote about it. It'll be in the paper on Thursday. <coughs> Hang on, that's me. Did you read Raz's article about better antenna, which could make our phones faster? No, I'm excited. Instagram takes so long to load right now. Agreed. Also, podcasting is exhausting. I'm thirsty. You're in luck. Zia's interview with professors who went to the White House to talk about conservation is like a cool drink of water. My name is Zia Lyle, and I'm a reporter for the Science and Technology section of the Daily Texan. Today on Longhorn Lab Report, I'll be talking with Dr. David Maidment. Dr. Maidment serves as the Hussein M. Alharthi Centennial Chair in Civil Engineering in the Cockrell School here at University of Texas. Dr. Maidment received his PhD in Civil Engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He was accepted into the National Academy for Engineering in 2016 and has served as director of the Center for Research and Water Resources here at UT. He recently attended the White House Water Summit to discuss current problems and goals surrounding water here in the United States, some of which we will discuss today. Dr. Maimant specializes in surface water hydrology and applying geographic information systems to hydrology. So to begin, can we first start by discussing the field of surface water hydrology? Sure. Well, surface water hydrology deals with water on the surface of the Earth and it's intimately connected with the hydrologic cycle, precipitation, runoff, evaporation, flow to the oceans, and so on. Okay. Um, what aspects of surface water hydrology do you primarily focus on? Well, um, I'm right now focusing on flooding. Uh, there's also water supply, there's water quality in rivers, there's ecological 
issues with supporting wildlife, but flooding is my main one. Okay. Um, and so what do you currently do in terms of research? I'm helping the federal government to develop a new flood forecasting model for the United States. Okay. And what are some of your past research included? Um, I've been working on building geographic information systems, in other words, information frameworks, because water flows through the natural landscape, and that's a complicated thing. Mm -hmm. And we have to have information about how large streams are, what kind of soils we have, that type of thing. Okay. Um, why does surface water need to be studied, and how does this relate to the bigger picture of global environmental concerns? Well, I got involved in studying surface water because, I don't know, the sun shines on it. You know, it twinkles. <laughs> and I was interested in studying water, and groundwater sort of goes into underground, and it sort of slowly, and I couldn't really imagine myself worrying about that. But surface water, I like it. Okay. Um, is there environmental concerns relating to surface water? Yes, absolutely. Water? So uh, we want to have all of our nation's waters swimmable and fishable, and that's a goal that's still elusive. Uh, the pressure of development means that water doesn't stay as clean as it would otherwise. And uh, there's also uh, the idea that we should retain enough water in rivers that we can support all the aquatic life that would normally be there. And that's tough to do when you have a situation like we had in 2011 when there was a severe drought here in Texas and rivers were low. Mm -hmm. So how does your work relate to droughts and then flooding? Um, well, that's a good question. So uh, during our 2011 drought, we had a situation where uh, our state nearly ran out of power. I mean, we had only a few percent of uh, the capacity to generate power in our supply system greater than the demand. And that small percentage was being eroded away because the amount of water that was available to cool power plants was being diminished. And we could easily have had a situation where we had rolling blackouts in Houston and Dallas and so on because we, we just ran, ran out of water to cool power plants. So one of the things that I've been doing is creating a digital map with flow in all the rivers of the state so that anywhere where people withdraw water for power or for any other reason, they can be continuously informed as to how much water is available there and what they can anticipate being there in the future. Okay. Um, so, kind of following that, could you describe your involvement in applying geographic information systems to hydrology and kind of describe what these information systems are? So, uh, when we want to describe something, so for example, if we want to describe something about a person, we use their UTEID or mm -hmm. their social security number. If we want to describe something about a place, we use a map. And what geographic information systems do is associate each thing that's in the map, each feature in the landscape, with a record in a data table, like as if it had its UTEID. And that way we can say, here is this thing in the land, and here is what it is in the data table. Okay. So how do you collect the data for this? Uh, by, it's by aerial um, photogrammetry, by satellite remote sensing, uh, by simply observing things, by going around manually collecting uh, data. Um, the U.S. Geological Survey had topographic mapping program over the whole nation, and those uh, were initially paper maps, but now they're digital maps. And so we have sort of water management on a digital basis now. Mm -hmm. So why do we need to model surface water and flooding? Um, well, we've got some significant situations. For example, in South Austin, in Halloween of 2013, there was a 40-foot wall of water that went through South Austin at 5 o'clock in the morning and flooded 700 houses and drowned five people, and there was no warning of that. The first that people knew that it was happening was that water was coming into their houses. Mm. Um, and 
the citizens have a right to be prepared, uh, of be warned of uh, dangerous situations like that. And in fact, there was a significant public reaction to that. Um, the city's flood forecasting system didn't work as it um, uh, had hoped to or should have, and there was no backup. And so what we're trying to do with the federal government is say, yes, the city has a forecasting system, but if it doesn't work, there's a backup here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so now kind of transitioning into the um, involvement to the White House Water Summit. Mm -hmm. um, so this, like here, the research, the Center for Research and Water Resources is going to collaborate with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to develop this national flood model. Mm -hmm. um, could you describe the goals of this model and kind of where you are now and where you hope to be? Well, flooding is just one of the purposes. It's actually a national water model, and there's a new national water center that's opened on the Tuscaloosa campus of the University of Alabama that's going to be the water forecasting center for the country. So like we have national hurricane center in Miami, there's going to be national water center in Alabama. And we're going to be able to describe the movement of water through the stream system of the country in a high degree of detail. For example, in Travis County here, about 520 locations will be forecast, compared with maybe five or six now. So the nation's flood forecasting system is going to be greatly densified by the national water model. It'll be about 102,000 locations in Texas, about 400 per county. And that's going to provide much better actionable intelligence during flood situations than we have now. Okay. Um, are, is the general public going to be able to access this information? Yes, eventually. But initially, this is, a, this is a huge lift. I mean, we've never had a national water model in the nation before. This is going to make water like weather. You know, mm -hmm. weather gets forecast every day, and every day and we don't think about it. But water, you know, we've never had such a thing. Mm -hmm. So this is a big lift. And uh, eventually, yes, the information will be publicly accessible. But at first, it's going to be mainly accessible to the technical community to validate what's going on. Okay. So, for instance, like... If it rains, you'll be able to see where the water will yes. go? Yes, and not just that. We're hoping to be able to forecast what the flow will be even before the rain begins. Mm -hmm. so you can anticipate what could be coming, mm -hmm. uh, even though it um, hasn't yet started. And, and that's especially important for staging emergency response uh, mm -hmm. resources. Will this system be able to work with, like, with weather, weather systems? Yes, it is part of the National Weather Service. So okay. the National Weather Service does weather now. They also do water, but in a less detailed way than weather, and now the, that's going to be strengthened. Okay. Um, so Dr. Maiman is also going to be working with the University Consortium for Geographic Information Science and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to analyze land surface elevation. What, what does analyzing elevations throughout the United States entail? Well, what the National Water Model is going to do is to forecast how much flow or the discharge of water in rivers. But what, re what really matters is how deep is the water and how much does it spread out if it starts to flood. And to understand those things, you have to know what the shape of the land surface is, especially around streams. And so analyzing the land surface terrain is going to clarify that. Okay. So who all are you working with exactly? To well, the collaborators of the CyberGIS facility at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, mm -hmm. and they have a special high-performance computer there that's de dedicated for geographic information science, and so we're using that facility to do this analysis. Okay. Um, and do you are you going to focus on, like, mainland U.S., or do you hope to expand this to, like, the rest of the world or North America? Um, so our first focus is on the continental United States. Mm -hmm. we, we aren't actually working f with Hawaii or Puerto Rico or mm -hmm. other places like that, Alaska. Um, but later, we want also to be able to extend this to other countries as well. And indeed, the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasting supplies some of the basic information that we need for the other parts of the world.
Okay. Um, and so kind of focusing again on the White House Water Summit, could you describe your experience there? Um, what was what like what was the experience? Like? Sure. So the well, I didn't go to see the president, or I wasn't on the West Wing. You know, I was I was in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, which is next door to the White House, and that's where most of the White House uh, staff, the Executive Office of the President's staff, actually works there. And the president wanted to have an event that was focused on water, and so they called for commitments from organisations around the country as to what they could do to advance goals of having a sustainable water future for the nation and our commitments about using the land surface terrain and the national water model and so on uh, were one of about 150 commitments that were made. Um, and when, when we were at the summit, there was a succession of speakers that dealt with different aspects of water in the country, and indeed it was pretty enlightening just to see how many different groups have their hands around water. I mean, it's so vital to mm -hmm. people that um, you can see how many people would have to be involved in order to cover the spectrum of users. Right. Um, so what were some of those interesting things discussed at this event? Um, there was a person there from an uh, Indian tribe in Arizona, and he was talking about water is not something to be used for Indians. Water is life. Uh, and I have served as a consultant for Indian tribes on Indian water rights, and I understand where they're coming from. I mean, I think we sometimes we live in a modern society where we just expect to turn on the tap and the water comes out. But for Indians, water is life. Mm -hmm. I think it was impressive to me. Mm -hmm. um, at the summit, did you work with people who are also kind of focusing on surface water, or did you interact with others who are doing more underground, like um, aquifers and things? Yeah, my part of it was mainly dealing with flooding and that type of mm -hmm. thing. There were others there, for example, there was a, a group from um, well, the company that makes jeans, and they were talking about how they're fostering clean water activities in their manufacturing facilities and there's a big spectrum of people there really a lot of different interests. Okay. Was the general mood kind of um, that we're at a state of crisis or that we could get to that state? No I wouldn't call it a state of crisis I think um, there's a generally optimistic um, feeling that uh, we're all pulling together to make a better future. Mm -hmm. um. Okay, so um, how do you, th in general, what do you see as the greatest problems today in terms of water resources? Oh, that's a good question. Well, first of all, that everybody has an adequate supply of water to drink and adequate sanitation facilities, which mm -hmm. on a global level is still a distant goal. Um, flooding is the natural hazard that most impacts people. Um, about two-thirds of all federal disasters declared have flooding as one of the causes. So I focused on flooding because I thought it has the greatest human impact and trying to mitigate the effect of flooding on lives and property, um, that'll always be a challenge actually in the United States and everywhere else. Mm -hmm. So on the global scale, scale is where is flooding the biggest issue and is in, in the world I guess in general, are problems with flooding associated with like human development and changing the land, or is flooding more something that's always going to occur, regardless of humans? Um, well, flooding will always occur, but the impact on people is concentrated. Mm -hmm. When they're concentrated together in low-lying areas, this, mm -hmm. um, where it has the greatest effect. Um, and there's certainly, you know, Bangladesh, for example, is a very flood-blown area. Um, 
And also there's some issues of economic justice involved. You know, often uh, where do people live who don't have too much money? Well, they live in low-lying areas and they get flooded out more than others do. Mm -hmm. So there's some things there that I think we need to pay attention to to make sure that everybody uh, has a flood-secure existence, not just the people who can afford to live on high ground. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, we need to change where we're living, or can we? are there other solutions? It's a tough situation. 15% of Austin lies within the 100-year floodplain. So it's, what do you do? Do you just say, oh, we're not going to use 15% of Austin, or you know, mm -hmm. it's just going to become a wasteland or something, or a park, or, no. I mean, there's got to be some balance there. And so it's convenient to say nobody should build anywhere in a 100-year floodplain, but there is almost an eerie feeling about some areas in South Austin where there were a lot of houses that have been bought out that were flood prone. And now you go through there and it's almost like a ghost town. I mean, there are streets, but there's nobody living there anymore. It's just kind of empty. Mm -hmm. And you know, somehow there's something wrong about that, you know, that, that we should somehow plan our communities more carefully well, we should have planned it more carefully in the past, or those houses wouldn't have been there in the first place. But um, we need to plan carefully so that we utilise the land as effectively as possible and minimise the amount of risks that's associated with being near streams. Okay. So the modelling services you're developing, do you think they can have a future usage in helping plan new developments? It's not really designed for that too much. It's designed for flood response for real-time events. Uh, there's a whole separate effort that's mounted by FEMA that deals with flood mitigation that's associated with regulating land use to keep people out of flood-prone areas. Um, we're not so much involved in that. We're more involved with, you know, what's happening now and how do we rescue people. Okay. And then kind of finally, do you think we're doing enough to address problems of water resources? And if not, what can we be doing? Yes, that's a good question also. Um, we made a big effort in the state a couple of legislative sessions ago to increase our water supply. I mean, there was serious concerns that Texas cities and towns would just run out of water. Uh, so that's helpful, but small when compared to the amount of money that's being devoted to roads. I mean, roads are getting billions and billions of dollars, and water got a couple of billion. Mm -hmm. um, so. I hope that that's enough. I hope that it was a one-time deal. I hope that, that it's enough. I think it's a little bit um, too soon to say exactly uh, on that score. Uh, but water is one of those fundamental things that uh, people just expect to be where they anticipate it should be when they expect it to be there. And if it's not, um, it comes as, as a shock. Uh, when I first came here in 1984, there was a shortage of water supply in Corpus Christi. And in May of that year, they, the city announced they had enough water for 300 days. So that the citizens of Corpus Christi faced the prospect that in one year's time, there'd be no water in the city. And there were 220,000 people living there at the time. Uh, well, you can imagine the reaction to that. Um, the citizens lost confidence in their elected leaders. Elected leaders lost confidence in their technical advisors. Young engineers lost confidence in older engineers. So the fabric of society started to unravel. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had a situation in 2011 where, it, fortunately, this really severe drought only lasted six or eight months, but there were some communities in West Texas that were 
hanging on by a thread. Mm -hmm. And uh, fortunately they all came through, but if they'd gotten to the point where they were like Corpus Christi was at that time, um, yeah, that raises questions about the sustainability of modern society here in Texas. Mm -hmm. What did Corpus Christi end up doing? They were bailed out by a deluge. <laughs> so in the fall of 1984, uh, there was a deluge, and, and their water supplies didn't fill up, but they filled enough to sort of avert mm -hmm. the crisis. But in the meantime, there'd been all kinds of plans like, let's build a desalinization plant, uh, let's put water through an oil pipeline. Let's <coughs> the more practical solutions were to open up old irrigation wells and get water that's not as good a quality but still was mm -hmm. there. But in a panic, people can do things that subsequently proved to be unneeded completely. In Australia, they had a terrible drought from 2000 to 2009 and built some desalination plants that now are not used at all, they're just mothballed. And so this careful judgment has to be placed, even in situations where society is under great stress, to make sure that solutions that get worked out actually are useful in the future. Okay. Um, I don't really have any more questions. Do you have any final comments? Or? Well, I've been here at the University of Texas for 35 years, and it's been a wonderful experience. Thank you for interviewing me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this is Longhorn Lab Report. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Longhorn Lab Report. Tune in next week for more cool science. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at The Daily Texan and our podcast department at Texan Podcasts. And be sure to check out The Daily Texan online at dailytexanonline.com for more awesome content. This podcast was produced by The Daily Texan and hosted by Eva Frederick and Ellen Earhart with special guests Zia Lyle and Dr. David Maidment. And the music was by Jazar. Be sure to check back next week for our next episode. And for more science and technology news, go to dailytexanonline.com.